0: Welcome to season nine of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we
1: get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game, meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today.
0: Hello and welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine.
1: And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. Today we're joined by Dr. Bruce Avolio, who was recently honored at the 25th ILA Global Conference with the ILA Lifetime Achievement Award. The award honors individuals who have made a significant lifetime contribution to the field of leadership through their published works and influential support of leadership knowledge and practice. Each honoree is presented with the award and has their work celebrated at the annual Global Conference. After the conference, recipients are added to the ILA Virtual Hall of Fame and as of late have come on the Leadership Educator podcast to talk about their experience.
0: We've been very lucky. And uh, just to add a little bit more context, so uh, Dr. Bolio, he is the Mark Pickett Chair and Business Strategic Leadership within the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington, whose football team is also having a pretty good year. In um, the Foster School, he also serves as the Executive Director for the Center for Leadership and Strategic Thinking, He's recognized as being among the top 70 most highly cited researchers in the U.S. in economics and business, among the top 3,000 across all sciences around the globe. And he's recently listed at the 18th spot on the all time most highly cited I.O. psych researchers over the last 100 years. And number three is the most highly cited author in the top OB textbooks uh, used in both undergrad and grad programs. And this year, Dr. Volio was recognized as being in the top 0.02% 0.02% of all scientists globally for his research impact and citations by
2: Stanford University. So welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Lauren. Hey, by the way, I want to add one thing about the University of Washington. Women crew, they rock. I mean, they they are doing really well and also our volleyball team. So I want to add those in and that's women. Um, so yeah, our football team's okay. Uh, they're, they're doing Okay.
1: Thank you for sharing that I feel like you just low key invited us to come out and visit you and catch some volleyball and and some crew if we can get that in the same
2: season I will take you crewing actually I we take our you wanted to know what we do in development programs when I do a lot of stuff on teams I start with crew.
1: And uh, I'm with it. So I'm in Philadelphia where we have regattas all the time. So I would love to come out to Washington. It's unfortunate. So it's unfortunate we didn't do this beforehand because Dan and I, we just, we all actually just returned from Vancouver, engaging with our colleagues, um, learning from other folks, hearing about new scholarship, um, picking up tips for teaching. You know, knowing that you've attended ILA conferences in the past, would you share a meaningful memory or two from years past in attending?
2: Well, I'm going to go back a ways. I'll um, and rather, you know, as, as I, as I want to try to focus also on helping people to think about development and perform and how that impacts, you know, and I, and I want to talk about very young people and maybe very old people uh, and and everything in between about what we can be doing in terms of leadership development and what what the importance of that is I, I I'll go back um I don't know it's probably I remember when the discussion happened around forming the ILA uh, because I was doing work uh at the University of Maryland funded by the Kellogg Foundation so I kind of go back to that beginnings and meeting Cynthia and others who you know would say the founders of of the ILA and I remember going to, um, I don't know if it was maybe the second one, perhaps, that Bob House was the um, speaker, uh, kind of the main speaker event, uh, the way it was structured. It was like not, it was one session, everybody came to that one session um, to, to hear Bob House. And when I think back on it, Bob was talking about the very beginnings of the Globe Project, which is now four volumes and Bob's not with us anymore, um, but he accomplished something that I would say, I'm not going to say moonshot anymore. I'm going to take a page from Elon Musk. Let's just call it the Mars shot. Now, we got to get past the moon and maybe further out. And when I listened to Bob, and he actually asked me at Texas Tech, Lubbock, um where we were doing a conference down there with Jerry Hunt, another, you know, giant really in our, our field, um, and Bernie Bass and all those other other kinds of folks that were around that time. Um, it was, you know, in the conference, I'm going to do this project, and we want to study how leadership is seen by different cultures. In fact, I I don't know, we might even get up to 100. They actually, at their first meeting in Canada, they had 140 um potential research directors from around the globe and they've gone up to 60 70 countries as well but I just remember like this is the beginning I'll call that the moon shot and not talk about the Mars shot or Beyond um and some other work I think we should be doing and when you see the beginning of something like that and then you see 20 plus years later um what happened and how it came about it is an example of not only the collective leadership of the world that came together around a common purpose to understand and i think there's so much rich um information there and people still carry that on like mansoor Javidan, who was one of the recipients this year um and i didn't get to see him present because i had a conflict but i know him well we see each other frequently but you know people like him picked this up. He was there kind of at the beginning as well. And they picked this up. And there's not a lot of things like that in the leadership field. I think it's something that ILA and also the Academy and other, the network of leadership scholars, if we got together say, what's our Mars What should we be doing? I think the Carnegie uh, Project is one that could grow to that. Um, But I look back to answer your question. I look back and in that experience, I was still, you know, kind of not early, the earliest part of my career, but I was still trying to figure things out. I declined to work on it um, because it wasn't my area. And I had other things happening uh, labeled transformational leadership at the time. And I was being pulled in lots of directions. And I just couldn't um, kind of pull away from that. And by the way, one of the things Bob House called me one evening and told me, he said, the most universal style of leadership we've found is transformational. That you find in every culture, as a, as a positive form of leadership, I had a lot of memories to that. Going back again, you could look back. Maybe it was the first couple of ILAs um, that that I went to.
0: Yeah, and so it's been so it's been a few years since you've um, been at an ILA conference. However, this one you were in the spotlight, right there to accept an award, part of the this group of honorees and have an opportunity to hopefully engage with some folks and and rekindle some connections. How was that different from maybe other ILAs that you've attended or other conferences that you attend that you mentioned like the Academy?
2: Well there's um, first of all I I, I want to say that the, that the whole organization of, of it is just the word I would say gracious in terms of how it was handled and uh, and what they did to make it feel comfortable. And making accommodations because I had a conflict on Sunday, so it was we were able to work around that. Um, you know, there's um, there's a lot of positive energy. I guess I felt among the people that I, I, I met, and I'm not just saying positive energy because I'm there, but just when even when I was walking around at the reception the first night and meeting people from different parts of uh, the ILA. Um, group it's just positive people were positive about being there um what I find going to other conferences is not a lot of attendance I mean 10,000 people show up and there might be three people at a presentation which suggests to me we have to rethink how we do this stuff um and I didn't feel a sense of that. I I don't you know I don't I don't think the formula for how people present it is that much different. I think people are just more eager and accepting to try to grab and learn. And you have more people like that are going after their PhDs. And so for them, it's like yeah, throw some tables and figures at me. But for the broader audiences, I think we have to think about it differently. And the structure of these conference centers don't fit the design of the program we need. But I felt really good about uh, about the experience. Um, it was nice. I'd done a lot of travel right up to it. So it was an, I love Vancouver um, uh, to settle into that. And I enjoyed meeting people I haven't seen in a long time as well. Um, I just haven't bumped into them. Some They go to a conference, I go to a conference, we just don't see each other when there's 10,000 people there. Um, and I also met a lot of people that were ego, eager to not talk about their research but to connect to the research that I was doing through their research. So it wasn't like, you know, give me, take me, take, I want to take away from you. It was more mutual. So I really enjoyed that.
1: You know, I, I love that you shared that. It, it makes me think it's like a, a whole bunch of live journal articles. Like you're like, oh, I have cited your work and I have cited your work. And, and now you're face to face with that person and you can actually hear the passion or hear the interest or even hear how they're continuing to explore like their big question. I know for me, I'm super early in, in my scholarship and being in those spaces, I feel like I come back jazzed with so many ideas, as well as wanting to connect with folks about what they're interested in and just hear more about it. You know, it's funny you say the conference and the schedule, the rooms being empty. There were a couple of sessions I couldn't even get in because it was standing right. room only because they were so powerful. Um, but in those moments, I, I enjoy talking to other people that were around um it it just it helps it it makes it like a fun environment i don't want to say fun and discredit the learning and the professionalism of that space but i really look forward to going because i know there's going to be good conversation but i'm also going to walk away with a lot to chew on when i get back home
2: it should be fun um (laughs) i even wrote an article a funny thing happened on the way to the bottom line which you now have to read and it's an Academy management journal and the editor wanted me to change the title I said after he accepted it I said now I don't have to accept your criticism I'm, I like the title it came up with some mundane, mundane time and people talk about that article oh I remember reading that article about yeah. and it, it what it showed is that people who lead with a sense of humor that doesn't put people down that builds people up it makes people more generative and and, and more engaged and things like that and I think it's part of that the conference. I, I also feel that, you know, with business, one of the things that kills more businesses is growth. Mm-hmm. Growth is infinite. Decline, you go to zero. I and mean, decline's kind of easy. You just keep going, going. And it's not easy, but you know when you're at zero. Growth, you never know when you've gotten enough. And I think with the ILA, it's probably the right size. If it gets bigger, it won't be what I just described. I don't think, because I've seen that happen with every other organization that has now grown up to be a global large organization uh, like the academy of management um, apa is just so big it's doesn't even fit into cities anymore you know it's just too big
0: Yeah, and,
2: and you lose to- this you lose that sense of 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 connective connective tissue that i think was there this time
1: we're, we're all separated by two or three degrees. Like you don't realize that you're meeting one person and that person knows some people that, right. that you're connected with. But, but to your point, you just said, you said, I, I I love how you kind of slid that in there. I put fun in my title and they told me to change it. And I said, no, I'm not changing it in my right. head. You said editor, but in my head, I was like, that's reviewer too. Um, but, right. but, but one of the things that Dan and I really want to talk to you about is your approach to scholarship. I mean, you're read, you're cited, you're discussed, you're critiqued. And and you, not just because like your name starts with an A. So you're first in the reference list, like you're doing really amazing work. And so we're here humbly asking for all of our audience, because we know there's, we got, we know after Vancouver, we have a lot of folks listening because they came and found us. Um, what advice would you give somebody either just starting out or even in mid-year in their career in terms of research? Like, well, what's that like key? What's that difference in your approach to scholarship that others can can learn from?
2: I think it's like a lot of relationships. You know, I've had friends that I've known since I'm three years old and i you know i can call up kevin i did two days ago i have you know friends from high school college and stuff. i've been really fortunate to have i mean not everyone sticks together but i think my friendship network has raised me up and you know people say uh, i married up that's there's no contest there at all in my mind um and and it's been enduring and I have a lot of relation. I have sometimes three PhD or four former uh, former PhD students work on the same paper. We just publish a paper. And they came from three different generations. Sometimes they even confuse like, oh, you wouldn't know that person because you didn't actually go to school at that time. And I say all that because it's, you know, it's really, you know, I should say the they. That's what's really important. I don't think good science gets done with individuals. I think good good I think individuals create great ideas sometimes it's walking down the street with your with your dog or cat I'll give you that if some if you're a cat fan I do think it looks a little silly but okay if you're a cat fan <laughs> um but you know the point being is a lot of times the co- ideas come to you clashing from something that happened in front of you that you just say wow that's interesting so I remain very open to serendipitous. I, you know, people say, how, how did you come up with this or that? It's usually through serendipity, most of it. And if you put yourself strategically into lots of different places, um, which I have in my career. So I've worked with correctional services to the Catholic Methodist churches to to um, every, you know, Fortune 100 companies and the, every military that, at least we get along with, or get along with now. Uh, maybe if we didn't earlier, and 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 everything in between, education, you know, high school, p- principals, and what has happened is I have this large repository of experiences that I can look at and say, you know, I've seen this over and over and over again. It it must be important. It's generalizable. In the beginning, you don't know that. But that doesn't mean you don't pick up the ideas along the way and so generally people will say you know i was just invited to be in in a group to work with the navy on some projects and generally it's not because one i haven't served in the navy um i haven't served and i've worked more with military than most people in our field and what happens is um i just learn a lot by immersing myself in those experiences. And you can do that purposively, accidentally, reaching out, reading stuff sideways rather than everything narrowly. And I think that I bring ideas, it's just what people say. I bring ideas to the table and then I find people that, that really know how to shape an idea into something that has discipline. And my ideas are rowdy. They're not always friendly. They're not always, you know, the easiest thing to understand. Not because of, you know, like you can't understand. It's like it's not really put together and packaged yet. Um, but if you look at my record and all the things you said up front, it's a they. I mean, I've been forced to write one or two things in my entire career that was single author, which I think is silly because nothing is single authored in life, nothing. We don't get here alone. We don't leave usually alone. And what happens in between um, happens because of, of, of people that we connect to. There are very few people, I don't care who they are, that do stuff that I would say is high quality science alone. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And you know, now we're moving towards a hundred people working on a paper in other sciences like mapping the immune system, little things like that. The brain, our Brain Science Institute, the Paul Allen just mapped the brain fully. You didn't do that with one smart person. I mean, it's, and I think those are the big Mars shots we should be looking at as a field. And Bob House did it 25 years ago. And there isn't many examples of that. If you have them, tell me, because you're studying a lot of this stuff. So I don't see a lot of examples of that.
0: Yeah, no, I really appreciate you stating that because um that's one of the things that I think I guess if you will kind of sucked me into this discipline and specifically the the pedagogical kind of subset of the of the leadership discipline is uh you mentioned the word gracious is how you would describe the community and kind of the the sense of the people that were at the, the ILA conference. And and I would agree I think that it's baked into us to to pay it forward and to and to model community and it's so much more fun to write with others, right? And to explore with others, and to present with others, because otherwise, what what are you doing? And really emphasizing that that relational aspect um, that sometimes is lost in in scholarship. And I I, I was just listening to, to NPR, and they were um, citing something very similarly to what you were saying. You know, you see these. It was literally a uh, quick, like 30 minute op-ed on the peer review process. And this prolific physicist was saying, oh, we don't write anything by ourselves anymore. And he was talking about, you know, these things in nature and, and science and what have you that, right. I mean, you've got hundreds of hundreds of folks. And while we may not be able to have the capacity to have that many, um, I think some of the best initiatives, you mentioned the the Door Institute and some of these others is you've got dozens of folks working together and it also, I think, gives us an opportunity to bring up some of the um, less experienced folks or graduate students that are just coming into the field, and to you know, to hear someone who's been in the field for who's made a lasting impression uh, share that that it's not just these things that you do on your own, or this emphasis that we we don't necessarily feel. I think in the leadership discipline around being a first first or or sole author um, that you do see in some of the other disciplines, um, I think is made a lasting impact and really helped to kind of shape the the sense of community the community of practice that we have
2: by the way I want to say the only thing I don't like doing with others although others have contributed enormously to it is when I sit down and write a book um I have done some co-edited books but I have this um my wife reads about 10 books a week and and sometimes it seems like 10 a day and she's just a voracious whole family have been like that and you know you know she's always telling me about this novel I have to read I have have to have a list of like twenty thousand. I have to catch up on starting with the the Russian authors which she goes through and comes back again and stuff like one of those people but the the thing about it is you know it's fun to be that author it's fun to because I spend a lot of time um in self-play and that sounds strange but in my mind Um, when I was growing up, I remember my mother would say, why don't you go out? It's really nice. And I was playing with my, my, you know, toys and army men and whatever else. And I had this whole scenario that wasn't done yet. And I find I bring that to writing a book, not an article. Articles are so formulaic. The, especially these days, it's hard to really do that, to write that way. But a book, you can write down every way you want, any way you want, you know. And I don't care if someone reads it or not, to be honest. I just enjoyed the process of, you know, thinking I'm at, a, you know, at the ocean writing a book like I'm some real novelist, which I'm not. But, you know, that whole sense, you know, with uh, the, the pipe, which I don't smoke. But anyhow, I thought, you know, just to have a pipe and look like I'm, I'm, I'm an author. But to me, that creation is the beginnings of a lot of ideas but that single kind of you know getting inside your head but all the stuff in your head came from other people right it's not like you just made it up it all came from what you read what you consumed your interactions what someone said to you a question they raised things like that so i just wanted to say in that sense i do enjoy the the isolation cuz i'm very introverted i know i don't come across that way but i'm a functioning introvert i get my energy from time Away from people, um, but I like to bring that energy to interactions with people. But it tires me uh, compared to someone who's more the, you know, extrovert.
1: Bruce, I think we're twins only because. Um... <laughs> Good. Me and your twins, your wife and I are twins in that I've got a 3 billion books and I love books in the process of getting books. Um, right. But the second part is um, what you just said about being an introvert. Like I always tell people I'm a midday person, so I'm great between 11 and 5. <laughs> but then after that, I could be by myself and be being and in heaven, just spending time and, and thought and thinking and doing and working and, and being being away from folks
2: yeah well, well I mean we could be triplets then <laughs> Have fun. yeah hey by the way I, I could send you if you're interested and I thought people would react to this in different ways but I sat down early in the pandemic you know which I you know was one of those jolts that we didn't even know how to go into it by the way I think the problem is we didn't know how to get out of it we thought oh it's just over and just driving in today people are never been as aggressive as I see Today and we're seeing it around everywhere, um, but going into it, I thought you know we've been studying psychological capital for a long time with Fred Luthans and uh, Carolyn and other people and lots of people. There's thousands of articles now on psychological capital, and it's a whole nother area, like a branch that I kind of you know again with colleagues who really uh, were interested in something that that kind of made me uh, fascinated and and I I wrote down 101 positives about the pandemic realizing that it was serious and people were dying but at the same time I thought you got to look at like what are the things about this that are positive that we can take advantage of and one of the things I told a lot of people. So I think that after we get through this, and in some way, you know, this is supposed to be the century of the biologist, and 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 so forth. Well, it is. I mean, they kind of saved humanity, in my view. I mean, other people may agree, disagree with that, but they they came up with stuff that um, has helped. Um, that if we had a number of positives to keep in mind, like what are some of the positives? Like, I don't have to make excuses to go to not go to social events that I don't want to go to. I had not have to make one excuse for almost two years. You, you, know, want, you all want to come over to this neighborhood. You know, it's not a good idea, social distancing. I was like, I didn't have to make it up. And I had a list of those things. And I sent it out to people. And one of the people, he's the one of the former directors of the Vision, um, and from Boston to Maine, um, and Michael. And he said, we sat down with my family every week at dinner on a Sunday and we picked one of your things and talked about it. And I thought it worked. I mean, it, it really worked. So I, I agree. I, you know, for me being in the pandemic was, a, it gave me a sense of solitude that I didn't find hard at all. And I felt really bad for some colleagues who just could not stay in the same place for whatever, without people yeah. and
0: and I would imagine that's what you'd want the impact of your your scholarship to be, right? Uh, folks sitting around discussing it informally and and what have you. As much as it um, certainly, I'm sure, it feels good to to get citations and things of that nature. But uh, right. you know, you you want your impact to to have a human
2: component to it. Um, well, you've my Ted Lasso article, haven't you? Which is one of the most amazing leaders that surprised everybody, right? And yeah. I don't know if you watched the show. Yep. But I was asked to write an article on his leadership, and when I we put it out there, we did it in like four days because it was easy to do because I'd watched all the shows and there was so many things there about him, vulnerability and humble and shortcakes and everything else that he did to to make other people feel good. And that article went out on our uh, business school website, and within a day and a half, I think it was up to three thousand hits the university said what is going on over there at foster with this thing uh fastest growth in anything they had posted so the university posted it to all their living alumni a hundred thousand plus people and it just I got notes from people about this five-page article um you can't imagine how helpful this was at this point in my life I just lost and just reading this article gave me um hope and I'm like it's Ted Lasso, it's not me. I'm just you know divining Ted Lasso. He's a, you know, and he's an actor, and he's just divining a concept. But I didn't say that to people. But I can't tell you it was really interesting. That jolted me into thinking how much need is out there right now, just around the big big bucket of well being, and having a healthy place to go and interact with people, which a lot of a lot of people don't have that. Certainly marginalized, but communities and organizations and even organizations that are very resource-rich, they don't have a place to go. So I think there's a big need there. I think it's a, there's a Mars shot in that that, that, that our well-being is not good. And that's just not because of the pandemic.
1: You know, it's interesting you say that because I feel like we all do this. We watch shows or movies through this leadership lens where like, so we earlier this year, we had on two authors who talked about the leadership concepts in Marvel movies. And I'm like, thank God, because I've been watching these Marvel movies since Iron Man one and see these leaders and I named them and call them in these different spaces. Um, but, but so, so the, the lasso article even the fun in leadership um, or the, the fun in, in scholarship, you know, it, it all kind of comes back to what you're putting out there, but then also what you're teaching those that you advise and you mentor that are in your program. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you use that you feel like you give to your students that you're teaching like um, either ideas on scholarship, um, approaches to, to teaching them and getting them to generate scholarship, kind of like, what are some of those nuggets you you leave them in your program?
2: So I'll, I'll throw out a couple things. One thing I mentioned earlier about crewing, which I'm going to come back to and the invitation remains open uh, to come out, uh, College Rowing Club. I'm also uh, on the, uh, you know, Boys in the Boat, the movie's coming out this December, actually earlier here, and um I've been on the committee to raise money for the shell house that actually where the boats were built can become a learning uh center so I will take you there I've got the combination to go in um to show you some history it's really kind of amazing I think it's going to bring out a whole lot of stuff I say that because I try to pick stuff that you know I want I went to observe ropes courses and climbing and this person up in um UBC in Vancouver British Columbia university um giving people these things to do like you know making up something that's not real and trying to make it real um has never really got me interested in how i work with people around learning leadership development i would rather get them close to something that's real for them all right so during the pandemic uh we started to write uh cases called uh consequential leadership in consequential times that's when i fell in love with jacinda ardern and um the fact she went to Harvard broke my heart but um I think she made a mistake and she'll she'll realize that because she's she's still young um and she was supposed to come to the ILA I don't know if you know this that there was a possibility she was going to speak at the ILA anyhow I started to do that because I want to I wanted our students to study I want people to study a consequential leader see what it's really like when everything's hot when the emotions are there when your stress levels are up to try to put yourself in that situation so that's one thing um, on more of an academic side and I'm doing that this year in one of my MBA classes and the other thing I do is I have people go interview a respected leader and I do many of those myself I give them like 15 questions I say you have 45 minutes they always go an hour and a half or longer not because of the er, but because of the interview e. And they come back with mostly like the reveling in the experience of finding out, oh, they actually had a lot of help to become this leader. They weren't born to be it. They actually had a lot of things they had to grow into. Um, they learn also that sometimes they picked the wrong leader. And after actually doing the interview, they're like, they're not really what I thought. They were kind of more, a little more smoke and mirrors. I think that's a really powerful exercise. I try to get them towards the implicit theory of what is the best leader and the attributes and behaviors. And by doing that, it actually pulls it out. And what most of the leaders who are really generative and respected leaders say, I haven't done this in a long time. And that is not surprising, but troubles me that they don't take the time themselves to really step back. They said, this has been incredibly reflective for me so thank you for doing that I know I only wanted to give you 30 minutes and we went an hour and a half because they don't do that so I try to pick stuff that both like in this case the interviewer interview you're both getting something out of it consequential leader case um when Jacinda comes here to meet I will go through that case with her and show where I came up with um but I did that case because I landed in New Zealand the day of the mosque shooting the day that right afterwards um in christchurch and i was in just completely consumed by the tragedy and how the new zealanders were trying to make sense of it and i thought this is something that um i just need to get more into i need to understand what what why why did this happen to them and what what the? and that that, by the way that mosque is a little tiny neighborhood mosque it wasn't hurting anybody and no mosque is wasn't hurting anybody and they just went after a really a family based uh, and uh, by the way it was Australian it was a New Zealander that but they apologized and they said one thing they said over and over again I met people a lot of places please tell people that's not us that's not us um So I try to find those experiences that um, can help people learn closer to the reality. So leadership is all tactical until emotions come in. And then it's the discipline that you use to kind of build that muscle. Um, I do teach backs in programs, classes. I ask them to teach back something. So I said, pick a concept and then you teach it to us. And they struggle with it. And it, because it's not instantiated yet in the way we would have it, like reading about it and writing about it and so forth. But when they do it, they know a lot more about that thing than they would have, you know, just a basic, you know, philosophical way of getting to understand, you know, you, you can't give the fish, you have to, you know, the old Chinese proverb. So try to use um, things like that. Um, I We are using... Um, We're doing things with programs where we um, have people work on real projects. And I'm starting to bring in cross-boundary. So um, having a tech company, large tech company, directors, let's say, level, um, a bio company, biotech, a company, an airline, one of the most elite uh, running shoe companies in the world. So what do they have in common? Not a lot, <laughs> just a teaser, but they, you know, obviously have been common about engaging people and so forth. But what we found that was in common that we're going to use is that it's kind of a tagline. Uh, how do you build a perpetually sustainable, innovative organization? If you think throughout history, there's very few organizations that still exist that started 100 years ago. Pack cars, one of them, like Mark Pickett, my chair, but um Nordstrom, um Ford. Most companies go away. Most companies really struggle to stay and live as long as the expectancy of um human beings. I and mean, most most companies don't live for 100 years. And so we thought this is kind of a uh, really, you know, it's kind of a you know, Mars challenge is like, could you build a sustainably innovative organization, perpetually sustainable. So it continues to renew itself. I don't think universities necessarily do that. I mean, we assume they do, but is Temple doing it? Is UW doing it? I mean, I think there is a tremendous well of entrepreneurialism here that's deep in our roots. You come out here, those people that came over the Rockies were different. (laughs) The ones that stayed in Nebraska where I used to teach, they were different than the people here. It's like, oh, let's keep going. Let's go climb over some cold, cold rocks and get to the other side and see what's there. And I think that that we have a really deep kind of root there. But there are a lot of things that we get too big and we get too bureaucratic and we get too dumb and we don't generate the kind of innovation we could. So we create centers and we create institutes, which are artifacts of the problem with our organization, I think. Um, so that to me is another project where we're bringing together now, the directors are responsible for for producing a tangible product process that supports perpetual innovation for their organization. But we believe the peer to peer to peer power of the peer is going to shape those ideas in ways that they never thought of before. And I've seen that happen when we bring together very different groups of people. Like we do academy with fire service chiefs, Italian chiefs, captains, and industry. We bring them both together. Biotech company, this company, mapped the Immune System, the, one of the brothers and co-founders. Bring them together. And the CEO asked me, what, what are we gonna learn from fire services? I was like, I don't know, but I, I'm wondering what they're gonna learn from you. And what you know what they came on common ground? Fairly quickly was around safety, See, you know, biotech has lots of labs and fire services has lots of challenges because it goes into buildings. It has all sorts of toxicity. You know, they have one of the highest cancer rates of any profession in the country. They also have more suicide rates now, going back to well-being, than, um, than they do in the line of duty. So more fire service people die from suicide now than from the line of duty. So... You got the and, and biotech has tremendous pressure stress you've worked on something for 10 years and it doesn't work out so they found common ground yeah sorry yeah anyhow they found common ground and uh i think that's really important to kind of pulling together the things that can generate different ways of thinking how do you lead something like that right most of our organizations don't get things done innovatively without some cross-boundary connection to people who think very differently. So those are just some things. Some of them are much more strategic. Some of them are more academic. But those are, those are some things.
0: Yeah. How do you push that point home in the classroom? I'd be curious. So you, you know, you, I really appreciate the, um, and have used that you know interview a respected leader in my in my own classes because i think to your to your points about not only giving the interviewer an opportunity to see what is it about this person that they respected that they want to explore in more depth but also a a self-reflective and self-awareness process more experience for the interviewee as you're thinking about some of these, you know, building sustainable systems and some of these really complex, adaptive, you know, challenges. What are some ways that you simulate or get your graduate students to start thinking in these complex ways that you found to be
2: effective? I'm as laughing to try experiment with In fact having them do an experiment. They're they're surprised at how hard it is to determine cause and effect when you have to think in a disciplined way like that. Um, but one of the things I've learned is uh, to, uh, Wednesday, we'll have someone in one of my classes. Um, it's a fellow, what we call, it's Fritzky fellows. Fritzky is the family endowed. So these people learn how to be coaches for the entire MBA class coming in. So there are 12 of them, and they work with 120 of our incoming class. Peer coaching, um, also team coaching and they learn a lot about their leadership development and um what happens is I'm going to have to also plug this in in just a second because I see my low battery sign coming up um you can edit that out um so what happened you know what happens there is we put them through a lot of intensives to learn about coaching and being a team we use crew actually that a one-day crew experience of teaching about team mindset and and processes that generate emergent states like cohesion so I put them through those kind of experiences where we're working on getting them to think about something that matters to their own development. So then during the year, every other week, one week, they have a peer-to-peer coaching class that they run, and they invite us if they want us. And generally, after one or two classes, they don't invite us, and they just run the class. Um, and I think it's built a lot of enablement among them without not having to be the stewards of it and we work with them for a year so it's not like a 10 weeks or a quarter or a semester um the other thing is we bring in um probably about five different executives from very different industries and we usually give them a question or two like for example how do you make difficult decisions how do you build trust in an environment where trust doesn't exist at the level that you think is even minimally uh, acceptable. And then we have the student, MBA, 30-something, meet with them ahead of time, have coffee, tea, have a conversation. They bring them in and then they ask the questions and we sit back and kind of facilitate and do a debrief after. And I feel like in that experience, they get a lot. By the way, the executives, some of them are on my board, our board of the center, is um, a great experience for them because usually they're asked to come in and present, like, how did you become the CEO? Blah, blah, blah. Some of these are big companies. And they've talked about that many times, but actually asking them a simple, straightforward question like that, not straight, not simple, but a, one question. I think in terms of class, one of the things, it's not just flipping the class, but You know, I I always start out by saying, you know, that the program you're in or the class that you're taking now can go in a lot of different directions. And a lot of it does depend on what you do. So I do debriefs at the end of every class, usually try to take three or five minutes. I try to get them to do it after I do it once or twice. A lot of times in the first three or four, they're debriefing and it's about me you know, it's about the instruction, about the structure and so forth. And then, you know, the third or fourth class will say, um, there's not been a lot of like comments about how you in- interact with each other. And it's less it's an aha experience that one is, a lot of times they're not given as much responsibility as an adult learner should have, or younger. I mean, I think we could be enabling people in schools much earlier than we do, much, much earlier. And so I try to give them more control. I mean, unfortunately, you prepare courses and you have a syllabus. So immediately you walk in and you've structured this transaction based upon what you think. And, you know, we're the experts, right? We're trying to do that to help get them through a lot of stuff that might be helpful. But at the same time, um, enabling them, if you go back to DC and Ryan's theory of self-determination, how did, how much self-determination do you want them to have? When you're working with them, I think a lot of faculty are better at that now, but still resistant to some degree of giving too much. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I was just
0: working on a proposal that I'm with a faculty member at Virginia Tech, and we're looking at how do students develop readiness to reflect, like the re- yeah. practice of reflexivity, because we want, you know, leadership uh, reflection critical reflection. Reflection is such, you know, so inextricably linked to leadership development, yet we assume that students are coming to the table just ready to reflect, right? And so some of the research we were uncovering around this is students have different levels of motivation to to learn and as a result to engage in reflection. And also um, as a result, how do we then develop their ability to be more self-directed or what, what was referred to in the literature is like their self-directed learner readiness that resonates with me and in fact on something i was literally working on just a few hours ago i'm curious bruce as we close out is there anything that we didn't ask you that you'd want to share with our leadership educator audience
2: well i want to pick up on not generally but about uh, uh yes but i want to also yes and use an improv principle here you know I want to um say that uh that that it's important area you're talking about there is an assumption that people can self-reflect and we you know it's like saying you can go to a double black diamond you know slope and go down there you'll be fine you don't need, you don't even have to know how to stop that's a problem you know like people don't know how to reflect and it's harder for some people than others so I've I've, uh this quarter I've done this before I try to pick articles that really get at the issues of of our day like you know I I talk about you know IED that I start with inclusion equity diversity so I wanted I want to approach it differently I think let's go to the inclusion part of it because I think that's going to be a really hard challenge so I find articles that kind of deal with uh, say inclusion and then get that into the discussion about what's going on in our society the other thing um, I gave an article um, to an MBA class on neurodiversity. And I find particularly when I teach in a technology type MBA oriented MBA because you know we're in Seattle so much tech around we have even an MBA for just you know more tech people. It is interesting how they think. Um, my class now is probably 30 or 40 percent women. Uh, beginning it was probably one or two women, not any more than that. And I'm finding that people coming into the pipeline, there is differences, obviously, between um, gender, gender identity, culture, and so forth. But I see more people coming in that look like they did 10 years ago that were male engineers. And they're thinking differently because they've been through STEM programs since they're in fifth grade. And I find a real shift there going on that – we're seeing evolution, I think, happening in a much quicker pace around the processing of information. So I think that's a big deal for what we study and how leaders relate to it. And I think that uh, there's a huge gap between what leaders understand, and I'm not saying leaders of the country, but just at all levels. And they label it like, oh, I don't really, we have problems with the gen whatever label, which is a marketing campaign for me more than truly substantive and a lot of criticism were using that stuff but I I had one member of the class who contacted me and said how appreciative she was that I used that article and that she felt that she could maybe talk to the her peer group about why she looks at things so differently and I'm like wow um and I'm sure that probably in in this group of 70 there's probably 10 people probably that might have said the same thing and maybe they will but I find that that's a big issue that people this because people process things in a different way there's no one way the article said at the end there's no one way for the brain to be normal there's many different no- and I think we got to recognize that that we're dealing with a very different space a couple of things like you know going back to um more shots one is we started in our field, and I said this at ILA uh, a couple of weeks ago when I when they did um, an interview with me around this award. And I said, you know, I said, you know, we started studying young kids and leadership, looking at you know directive leadership, participative leadership, and laissez-faire leadership. And then today, to get an article in our top journal on on kids um, is not—it's just not doable. And I think we're missing a great opportunity to start earlier in the pipeline, to see what people are actually coming in later in the pipeline with. And we're missing, I think, a tremendous opportunity in the traditional field of leadership. Um, I think the other things that are are important is peer. And I'll just say the horizontal leadership is sorely um, misunderstood. But it's one of the most important ways that organizations as, actually navigate through their complex worlds. It's not the vertical, you know, trigger stuff, the horizontal interprets it, makes sense of it, gets things done that way. And I think we're, we're, we're if you look at the literature, you know, the closest thing is kind of like peer leadership. It's not a lot of research on that. There used to be, but that's gone uh, away. I think it should come back uh so that'd be another another thing and I also think that um every day there's an article on embracing AI being afraid of AI will AI you know shut us down et cetera, etc um it's here and every time we unleash something like this we have to figure out this is a bigger thing than most anything we've ever unleashed But, and it will change. It's already changing. um, For example, my upcoming class in the winter, the director said to us, the three faculty teaching that quarter with this group said, uh, they want to know how we're going to incorporate AI into the curriculum. Um, You know, in the past, people usually would say, I want to know how you're going to incorporate, you know, gender issues or race or something into the curriculum. And that's not, it's going back years, but also in the current How are you going to, you know, in the 80s, how are you going to incorporate what's happening globally in terms of shift? Now it's, you know, the one they're asking is AI. And I think it's um, an enormous opportunity. Like I'm thinking of how all the advantages of using it for um, development. Like imagine personalizing development through having an interactive system where you can actually ask them the knowledge of the world about. The development, and not all it's going to be true, by the way, because we know it's not accurate. Anyway, those are things I think are big issues, there's many other issues that we can um, talk about. Choices that we're going to be making as a as a global society um, in the human species that hopefully will be our choices. They may not. Uh, but Thomas Edison once said, "We have Edison once said we have enormous capacity to build these big machines." but our ability to implement them is weak. And that was very true of the atomic bomb, and it's very true of AI. And in fact, the people who are behind AI, some of the truly scientific people, the, the deep you know, um, innovators are concerned about putting rail, guardrails around it. So that concerns me. But I think it will save countless lives. What we'll learn if we were able to figure out how to work with it.
0: Yeah, no, well, it's sage advice, and you'll you'll probably appreciate that. Um, as we as we close out here, our our season uh, theme uh, this fall for the podcast is about generative learning for leadership educators, and uh, we've had quite a few guests on to talk about how they're implementing the use of AI in the classroom and in leadership places and spaces, and um, ethics is certainly at the um, at the top of that at those conversations. So, well, Bruce, thank you so much for, for joining us today. We're truly grateful for your time and congratulations again on your award. Thank you, Dan and Lawrence. appreciate it.
2: thanks very much.
1: Leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or, if you're an academic leader looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today.
0: Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page, and find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Doctor Underscore Leadership, and Lauren is at M R S L A U R J B. That's Miss. Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at leadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars, as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us.
1: We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management.
0: And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor, and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience.
1: And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ILA